Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today we're talking about, I guess we're talking about veganism. I, I was trying to think of what the topic is, but it's, I guess it's veganism. And it's veganism from a, a documentary standpoint and from a science standpoint and from a rational standpoint. Now let me kind of describe all of this because I know that sounds confusing. There, the, the world is so polarized and nutrition is no different. It seems like it's vegan versus keto. It's certainly plant versus animals. From a health standpoint, an environment standpoint, an ethical standpoint, it's like this, three stu- uh, this three-legged stool, this, this constant debate from both sides that's so polarizing. And, you know, it sort of, I guess you could say it started in, in science journals. It, I think the whole debate started around health. Um, and, and around science. But as we see with nutritional science, it really gets played for people's advantage and, and the science kind of gets lost in it all too frequently. Not always, of course, but all too frequently, unfortunately. But now it's sort of graduated from the science uh, onto our TV screens, onto our computer screens, and onto documentaries. And the problem with documentaries, well, the good and the bad of documentaries, right? The good is they tend to be entertaining. They tend to be gripping and, and fun to watch. And you can reach so many more people the bad is there's usually not much fact-checking, and we've gone through this with um, what the health and with game changers, and you know, is it a is it a documentary or is it uh, propaganda, right? And there's so many problems with it, and we've we we we've dealt with that on our website with certain uh, videos and and guides, and but now we've seen uh, um, a number of documentaries, I guess you could say, from the other side of the equation, right? Those were clearly vegan. Uh, proponent vegan created with an agenda. And now there have been others, Sacred Cow, which we also featured um, uh, with Diana Rogers, and Fat the Documentary by Vinnie Tortorich, in fact, Fat Fiction from Wide Eye Productions, um, which I was a part of, so uh, I've got to disclose that. And I don't know, my perspective, those have certainly been better, but we've been trying to be critical of those as well and, and be fair in our analysis. Well, now there's a new one um, called Beyond Impossible, again, by Vinnie Tortorich. And this is so timely because of the seeming like increased groundswell um, fueled by a lot of uh, very wealthy individuals and influential individuals trying to seemingly push this vegan agenda, um, whether it's these two specific companies, Beyond Burger and Impossible Burger, thus the title, Beyond Impossible, whether it's those individuals or others in, in leadership positions, it seems like there's been a little bit more of a groundswell, certainly within the media. So very timely for Vinnie Tortorich to come out with this uh, documentary. But we're also going to hear the other side of the equation from Simon Hill, who is a um, uh, has a master's in nutrition science and is a physiotherapist and a, a plant proponent, um, certainly for plant-based diets, but in a very reasonable and evidence-based uh, manner. So I think this is going to be an interesting uh, podcast talking for two very um, different individuals from different backgrounds, different belief sets, and sort of approach this um, this concept and this discussion from very different ways. So I hope you enjoy uh, this podcast talking about uh, about veganism from different perspectives. So let's hear from Vinnie Tortorich. Now, you may have heard of Vinnie Tortorich from his prior documentaries, Fat, the documentary, and Fat 2. He's uh, sort of known as the celebrity fitness trainer, which is certainly how he started out, but he's evolved big time since then from an author, a podcast host with, as you'll hear, over 2,000 podcast episodes. I don't know how you do that. And now documentary uh, filmmaker. And he's a very passionate guy. He really wants to rectify what he sees as lies and mistruths and being misled and wants to get the information out there. Um, and he's very outspoken about that. And he has this new documentary called Beyond Impossible, which will, is available on Amazon and iTunes. And um, I'm going to let him tell you a little bit, bit about it. Well, you'll hear from, from our interview kind of what it is about. But it's basically trying to clear the air on what he sees as the vegan agenda um, and really kind of make it clear what arguments have some strength and which are more propaganda. Um, and he, uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, mix his words. He, he tells it like he sees it. So let's hear from Vinny Tortorich. Vinny Tortorich, thanks for joining us again on the Diet Doctor podcast. It's great to see you again. Uh, thanks for having me, Brad. This, it's always great talking to you. And for once, I did a documentary that you're not in. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't be offended by that. That's okay. But, uh, but you know, in the intro, I, I always like, I'm concerned. How do I introduce you correctly? Like you're the 
you're the celebrity fitness trainer. Well, okay, that's how you started. Now you're so much more than that, right? You're a podcast host, you're an author, you're, you know, you run a website and you promote the NSNG, but now you're a film creator, a, a documentary creator and producer, and you got to add that to your list and you've got a new uh, documentary coming out. So I want to hear a little bit about sort of what got you into making documentaries in general, but then specifically Beyond Impossible. What was your motivation for making Beyond Impossible? Well, the, the whole thing behind doing um, any documentary for me was just an accident. It, it really was. Um, I had a guest on my show, uh, Peter Pardini, and he was a filmmaker. Uh, he, he, he had one of the best documentaries out about the band Chicago. And he goes, man, you need to do this. And I said, you know, everyone tells me I need to do this. I don't have the money. I just, I can't. And he said, yeah, but you have a fan base. You can, you, know, you can crowdfund this. And I never thought that could happen. So since I didn't think it could happen, I said, sure, let's, let's crowdfund it. And um, we were trying to get $150,000 for the first movie, Fatter Documentary. Mm-hmm. We ended up getting close to a quarter of a million dollars. So now I had to go off and actually do a movie, <laughs> which was very scary because I'm not a filmmaker. As you said, I'm a fitness trainer. I've done that for 40 years. And now all of a sudden, hey, you're producing a movie. What does that even mean? I just came back from the UK. We went and visited Serena's family for Christmas. And whenever you meet people, they'll say, oh, so Vinny, what type of work do you do? I'm confused when I'm asked that question. <laughs> I never tell people, well, I, I wrote a book. I've, I've written two books and I have my third documentary. I always just say, I'm, I'm a PE teacher. I'm a fitness trainer because that's what I've always been. You know, this has all been brand new for me in the past 10 years. So, yeah, uh, yeah well, it's it's exciting that you've added this to your repertoire and and obviously getting a lot of good traction with Fat, the documentary, and then Fat Two, and now Beyond Impossible. And you know, if you watch the the trailer to Beyond Impossible, the you you hit them right off the bat. You've been lied to. Boom, you've been lied to. So, what do you mean when you say you've been lied to? And how did that? I mean, it's clear you only do things that you're very passionate about. So, so what brought up the passion for you to do a documentary about veganism and what you boldly claim are the lies of veganism? You know, it's interesting because when I came on the, onto the scene 10 years ago with the podcast, we just went past 2,000 episodes. Um, my whole thing was your good intentions have been stolen by the health and fitness. The same industry you're going to to try to get healthy they're stealing your good intentions. And that's not a good thing. Um, so I've always been the guy to say, listen, you've been screwed over and I'm going to tell you the truth. Now, the only way for me to do that is to give it away for free. Because if I go, hey, I'm the savior, I'm going to tell you the truth, pay me, then they're going, okay, he's the next scam artist. So I started this whole thing by saying, here's the truth, here it is for free. And it's still free. Now, whenever you put out a book, of course, you have to charge something. Or whenever you do a movie, it doesn't cost zero to make a movie. You have to charge something, and you're hoping you get your money back. But guess what? You don't have to watch my movies or read my book. You can listen to the podcast. We put all the shows up for free. Uh, I have a free PDF you can go and get. I've been after the truth online for well over 10 years. So... Whenever I start looking around and I see that, you know, movies come out like What the Health and Game Changers, and I go, okay, these are absolute lies. And you go, well, why should we believe you then? Well, you can't say in a movie that if you eat fat, you will get pus in your body. Your body will (laughs) fill with pus. You're a doctor, Brett. Where is all this pus? I'm not sure where the pus is, right? Or when you say, if you eat one egg a week, this is actually a statement by Michael Greger, a doctor. If you eat one egg a week, you will get type 2 diabetes. I can't get one actual doctor to back up that claim. Mm -hmm. Dr. McDougall will tell you the only way to cure type 2 diabetes is by eating sugar. Statement made by him in my second movie. Look at it. I'm not making this stuff up. So when it came to 
okay, now we're looking at this fake meat industry. I looked around and went, okay, could it possibly be good? And I just started going down a rabbit hole. Well, at the very least, it's a processed food. We all know that processed foods are not good for you. Okay, what one of the processes? And when you look at how they process this stuff, you're literally better off eating an Oreo cookie. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I, I couldn't make this up. By the way, an Oreo cookie is also vegan. That's why I use Oreo cookie to make this example. Oreo cookie is vegan. And beyond burgers and impossible meat, all, it's all vegan, right? It's not healthy. And then you go, well, well, they're saving the planet. Really? Well, let's see where this stuff is coming from. Well, most of the ingredients are made in China. And then they have to be shipped here, right? What do you mean by so, that? It, <clears throat> Yeah, that that so I think that's surprising. So first, okay, let's rewind for a second. So better off eating an Oreo, except the, except the impossible, you know, the fake meat burgers. They have protein in them. So I I think the push is a way to get you know vegans protein so that they don't have to eat animal meat. So that makes them quote unquote better, but still of course processed and and not natural foods. But when you say it comes from China, I think that's going to surprise a lot of people because I'm sure most people think it comes from you know soy farms and and uh, wheat farms or whatever in Kansas and Nebraska and, and like the farm belt. So what do you mean it comes from China? That's surprising. Most of the ingredients that they use that they have to mix together to make the product is made in China, the, the, you know, each single piece. And then they ship it here, which means it's going to take either Jet A or diesel or some form of transport to get it here. So that's more CO2 carbons in the air. Then when it gets here, they have to bring it all into a factory and they have to make it. Now, more energy, more CO2 carbons going into the air. So you're taking this one-off ingredients, you're putting them together, you're making them here in the U.S. and in Europe, and um, you, you're putting more and more in C CO2 carbons into the air, and then you're telling people this is better for the environment. Hmm. No truth behind that. And you brought up a couple of other things. Well, you're telling vegans you're getting protein. This is better than the Oreo cookie. You mentioned soy. We both know that soy causes inflammation. You know, the, the one thing the vegans, uh, you, you don't believe that. Do well, you? I think I think that's a little bit too much of a blanket statement. Yeah. Well, um, it is. But when, you, when, you, when you cook it down, when you turn it into other products, you're now making it something that can cause inflammation. And by the way, 90% of all soy products are GMO products because they're all made by Monsanto around the world. So the same people who are yelling about non-GMO is telling you to eat a GMO product, 90%, yeah. almost all now, of the soy you get. Now, would you have any problem with somebody creating a, a, um, a vegan fake burger with protein to satisfy vegans who are looking for a source of protein if it didn't come with the claims that this is healthier for everybody, this is better for the planet. But look, if you choose to be a vegan and you want a source of protein here, we have a, this, this fake burger for you. Do you have any problems with that if it comes without the claims? No problem whatsoever, but Brett, they're not going after vegans. They're going after you <laughs> and me. They're yeah. telling us, hey, we have something better than your meat. See, the vegans are going to take it because they're already, they're, they're not going to preach to convert it. They're preaching to us, us yeah. heathens who are eating meat. Hey, meat guys, we, we finally have something for you. Right. That's why they want to get into Burger King. They want to get into KFC. They want to get into all of these different places, right? They're not interested in the vegans. They already have that group. They have to sell it to you. Yeah, I think that's a great clarification that it's a it's the point of we found something better for you. We found something better for the environment even if you're you're not vegan, it's not your concern, it's not your issue. You should still be eating this. And I think it's interesting to find like who's promoting it, right? Where is this this supposed groundswell coming from to promote that this is the better way? And you can go back to Eat Lancet, you can go to, you know, the the vegan doc, uh, doctors and the documentaries and 
And is it coming from like a true reputable health perspective or is it pure financial propaganda? And in your documentary certainly makes a case for one of those. I think the answer is clear here. I'm leading the witness, but I give us your take on that. Yeah, you know, I look around and go, well, why would Walter Willett, a guy who is heading up the health department at Harvard, get behind this? And then you look and you go, well, you know, he's part of, Eat Lancet, he's part of, you know, they, they have these guys at the World Health Organization. You have all of these guys doing all this stuff. And when you look around, you go, well, why, still, why would Walter Willett be behind this? And then you start fig- figuring out, oh, wait, they, they're using Walter Willett to do their half-assed studies, right? These, these weak epidemiological studies, they're doing this stuff. And saying, hey, meat's bad for you. Saturated fat is bad for you. Don't eat any of this stuff. We've seen this over and over. They, they do it with coconut oil. They'll say, look, it's, a, it's vegetation, right? But it's not good for you. Why is it not good for you? Well, it's a saturated fat. But why is it not good for you? Well, because we said so. Well, that's <laughs> always coming from the oil industry, the seed oil industry, that doesn't want to see something like coconut oil make it into the popular areas. They've been doing that since the 1950s. The same thing happens here. You know, when you have Unilever and all these big multinational corporations saying, we can make this stuff for cheaper, here's some money, go figure out how our stuff is better. You can do a lot of squinting as a scientist and put out anything. Nina Teichel's proved that in her book, Big Fat Surprise, right? She basically just took the same studies that they used to show one thing to show something else. Yeah. What does that tell yeah. you? You can squint. You're, you're a scientist. You can squint hard enough and make anything look like something else. Yeah. When you combine financial um, obligations or financial motives with health and with food, it becomes a mess. And I think that's the mess that we're in now. But I'd like to think that there are scientists, clinicians who truly believe that this is the better way to go and would want to be part of any discussion about that. But yet it seems you are very clear in your documentary how you reached out to a number of different vegan proponents and scientists and physicians and sort of were rebuffed at every turn. And I think that's important because other documentaries, like you mentioned, What the Health, were clearly all one-sided. They were not meant or intended to be an overview of the topic, a a unbiased overview. It was clearly a very biased one, one-sided approach, but you reached out to others, which I would have thought people would have wanted to be part of a discussion, but what did you find? Yeah. You know, by the way, we reached out to way more than we put on screen, but at some point you can't make the whole movie about that. Yeah. But I took, I took the top guys. I took uh, the aforementioned McDougal, uh, Gregor, um, uh, Walter Willett, uh, Dean Ornish, I, I mentioned a few of the biggest vegan proponents, the ones that you hear about all the time by name. Mm-hmm. And said, look, here are some of the major guys we reached out to. And I didn't just say they told us no. I put their letters on screen to say, this is how they turned us down. I wanted people to know, I really, really, really wanted to bring both sides to the table. I couldn't find one vegan doctor. And by the way, they're always going, I'll come on to your podcast. I, okay, come on. I've done 2,010 episodes now. I cannot find, I've asked you maybe four or five times to be on my podcast. And within a day, you're emailing back. Absolutely. What, you, know, you don't even say, why do you want me on? You just go, yeah, let, let's just do it. Right. If I did that with Gary Taubes, boom, he comes on. I do that with, uh, it, it, you name it. I do it with Eric Westman. You know, he almost breaks his fingers writing back to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys had every excuse in the world not to come on. They won't come on my podcast. They won't come on uh, uh, my movies. When I'm begging them, I said, look, you know, you have one side. I have another side. Let's talk about it. No one is interested in having a real dialogue. Yeah. Because. They know I'm going to ask them the first question is going to be, how do you deal with vitamin B12 before exogenous vitamins existed? And you cannot answer that. It's, it's an essential vitamin that you need for life. 
right? Yeah, but right. the so the answer now is you take B12 supplements, and that so that's uh, you know you could say now is sort of a, a non-issue, but it brings up the point that this is a nutritionally incomplete diet. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but it has to be defined as a nutritionally incomplete diet. Um, but do you think that really matters? Do you think that is a a, a main pushing point when the the response is where you just supplement with the things you're missing? Yeah, because we live in a world we live in now. You can supplement all day long. You know, you can, you can take each individual uh, amino acid you're not getting from not eating red meat. But my my thing is, let's pretend that we're living back in a time of the Waltons. I mean, I think we found the first vitamin. That's what they called it at first. There was a German doctor in the 1920s, you know, late 20s, maybe early 30s. And yeah. we didn't come up with 13 essentials, not all of them until somewhere in the 1940s. 40s or 50s. And, you know, vitamins, exogenous vitamins, meaning a vitamin pill just wasn't a thing, you know, for so long. So if a diet could not be healthy in 1865, when, when G. White said we shouldn't eat anything with a face, why would it be healthy today? Just because we can go out and buy all of the, the components separate to make it healthy. That makes absolutely no sense to me. Does it make sense to you? Well, no, not that it's a healthy way, right? And I think this is where your your documentary does a, a good job in, in separating health claims and environment claims. And it really seems like that's where the push has gone. Almost like the the health argument really is starting to, I guess you could say, fall apart in terms of um, if you look at quality of science and if you look at um, the the diet as a whole rather than individual components. So then the 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 trend now is to talk about the environment and, and about um, about an, animal lives lost. And you did a, a I think a pretty good job with some, you know, I guess some people might think some graphic images of shooting animals on your agricultural plant farm to protect your crops and a rabbit trying to outrun the combine as it's coming towards them that you did a very good job of saying, look, some of these arguments just don't make any sense either. Like lives lost doesn't make sense. Uh, contribution to the environment doesn't make sense. So tell us about some of the things that you found that surprised us or, or maybe you think are most pertinent what you found from those topics. Yeah. You know, in, in the past 10 years doing my podcast, the first five years was all about, you know, oh, this keto thing or this low carb thing cannot work because uh, you're asking people to cut out a whole macronutrient from their diet. Mm -hmm. Well, when you got five or 10 people doing it and they lose hundreds of pounds, people go, oh, that's just in one experiments. But when you get tens of thousands and you've been in the game too, you get tens and tens of thousands of experiments of N1. Isn't that not an epidemiological study just done all over you know, the planet? And we see this every day. Well, the vegans, I'm saying the vegans, but the powers that be looked around and went, wait a minute, the internet is showing too many people losing too much weight and they're healthier and <clears throat> they're all putting their numbers up there. Oh, look, my A1Cs are now below 5.6 again. There were 11 or 12. That's not going to work anymore. We need something new. We need something better. And you got this Greta Thunberg saying, I dare you. And that, you know, all this stuff is coming around and and the world is crumbling and is going to all be gone within five years. By the way, I've been hearing that since I was a kid, since 1972, 73. If we don't change things right now, the world will be over with in five years, right? Well, we've gone 10, 10 times past that. We've gone 50 some odd years and the world is still here. But now they're telling us that if we keep eating meat, the planet will be over with in just a few years, by, by 2030, planet is done. Okay, why is that now the new narrative? You see, they just changed the narrative from health because there's too many M1 experiments over here saying, look, I've lost weight, and too many people looking at that. So let's change the narrative. Let's say that the planet is going to end. But as it turns out, methane is not the problem. Methane from cattle is regenerated within 10 years. What comes out of a factory or what comes out of the tailpipe of a car or a leaf blower, that stays in the atmosphere for thousands of years. So, you know, let's not look at the man behind the curtain. Let's mm -hmm. not look at the truth. 
let's make it cattle. Let's make it ruminants. And guess what? You know, in the film, the guy who is the president of the, you know, Brown, one of the presidents of Beyond Meat, he, he goes, yeah, you know, by 2030, we should have executed all the cattle on the planet. Just, they need to be gone. They need to be gone. And when I, when I found that clip the first time, I went, oh, Jesus Christ, this can't be real. I found it again and again. I actually show it twice in the movie yeah. where he's saying we need to get rid of all cattle. Well, are you going to come after Bambi too? Because that's a ruminant and that's putting more methane in the air than anything else. And my neighbor, who is one of the foremost authorities on, on wood and trees on the planet, a professor who's written several books, Hank Shugart, he's explained to me time and time and time again over scotch that the number one animal that puts methane into the atmosphere happens to be a termite. Right. So, yeah, there's more termites <laughs> than any other animal on the planet. And that's what's putting most of the methane. Yeah. And this is coming but but from I think it's clear, like you're, like professor. you're saying, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an end runaround to, to take your attention off the main, what the main problem is, which is CO2, which is people, which is humans, because it's, it's harder to control you know, how many people there are and what people are doing in India and in China and different countries. When, if you already have a strong belief that eating animals is wrong, it makes it very convenient to say, this is the way to save the planet, even when the science doesn't add up and, and match it. So I, I would like to think though, that there are people who, who want to eat a healthy vegan diet and be healthy and um, maybe not believe all those claims. Do you think they're going to watch this documentary? And what do you think they would take away from this documentary? I think, uh, you know, I've, over the years, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of vegans who, and they will all tell you, I've never tried once to turn them away from their vegan diet. They came to me for health and I said, listen, if you're doing this for ethical reasons, I'm not here. I'm, I'm not a preacher. I'm not here to be your religion teacher. You go and do you. I'm just going to tell you how to be the healthiest you you can be. Now, I always try to steer them towards being a vegetarian because at least I could get cheese in them, right? Mm -hmm. And if they won't do that, I'll back off. But in a lot of cases, when they see the benefits that you could get from at least going to cheese or, or eggs, this sort of thing, um, and I've actually had a couple of them raise their own hens and started you know, deriving their own eggs because it, factory farming is a real problem. I could do a whole documentary on factory farming. Not yeah. good. Um, so yes, we do have a problem. Um, but I've turned a lot of vegans without using one word by saying, Hey, you need to get off of the stupid diet. They do it themselves. As a matter of fact, um, 87% of all vegans generally go back to eating meat at some point in their life. Now, well, what about the main claim against, um, eating meat? a lot of it factors on the, the CAFOs, the, the confined animal feeding operations, the industrial side of raising cattle, not the, I guess you say, the good part of raising cattle out on grass, out in nature, the way they're supposed to be, but the, the industrialized part. Do you think that needs to change or needs to be addressed? Absolutely. We, we, have, a, we have a big problem. Um, th this makes me sound hoity-toity. Um, my wife and I, we, we get to eat pasture raised, pasture, you know, we don't have a kid and, you know, she's graduating this year. We're, we're not raising a kid. We have just enough money to be able to afford that life, right? Uh, we're not rich by any stretch, but we can afford the life where we, we bring in good meat. We still, we, we, look, we, we shop around, we buy it on sale. We go to four or five different meat markets. We call ahead. You can still get this stuff at a discount, right? You can get it for the same. But I get it, man. People in, in big cities, people with three or four mouths to feed and what have you, it's not easy. And um, if they're going to eat meat, they're going for that kind of meat. Um, it's a problem. Yeah. If you're asking me if I have an answer, <laughs> man, you know, uh, I and this is why I wanted to bring everybody together in this movie. Yeah. I wasn't trying to hang vegan doctors up and go, aha, I got you. I wasn't trying to do that at all. I wanted to make a well-rounded movie where 
at the end, we could have said, hey, listen, our cattle can fertilize your fields. We don't have to monocrop anymore. We can work towards regenerative cropping the way our ancestors did. We don't have to do it this way. Right. Right. But, you know, how do you, man, you know, that, you know, we look at what goes on in the Middle East and we look at what goes on, you know, in Israel, you know, you can't get these two sides together. It's almost <laughs> like that. You know, I wish I could bring the vegan lords together with the beef lords and say, hey, guys, we have this thing going on. Let's, let's work together instead of saying yeah. you're the problem. No, you're the problem. Both sides have a big problem. Right. I couldn't even bring them together to do a documentary. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is, it is interesting how, if you can complain about industrialized, uh, the way the industrialized cattle system works, but then have no problem with the way the industrialized agriculture, soy, wheat, corn, monocropping with the destruction of the land and the fertilizer and the CO2 emissions. And you have no problem with that, but you're going to, you know, I think we do, have to criticize both systems and say neither one is the solution and find the solution that, that improves both of them and, and trying to get people in the same room is definitely a good start. Like you're saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, and look, I mean, the solution is what's coming out of a cow's butt yet. Nobody wants to admit that, you know, <laughs> we, we can, you know, we can have cattle eating this, you know, just grazing on land that's regenerating just in one year and then do a crop. I remember growing up, Oddly enough, all of my family were sugarcane farmers. They didn't crop the same land. You know, it looked like a checkerboard. And, and if, if you flew over it in a crop duster, which I was able to do because we knew the guy that had the crop duster, it was a cool thing to do. <laughs> it would look like a checkerboard. It's like these acres are being used this year. Those acres are being turned over. And, you know, they go out there and they just chop it up. And the sun is hitting it and the rain and everything else. That's how they kept the yields high, right? If you just keep planting cane year in and year out, you're going to rape the land. You're yeah. not going to be able to get the yield. So they did it to make more money, right? We're not right. doing that anymore. We're just raping and raping and raping, and there's nothing. You got you to put urea down. You got to put all kinds of crap down. You know what it takes to make urea? You know, <laughs> think about that. You got to go... Uh, I grew up in a, in a place that had a urea plant. Really? We, we, yeah, they call it Cancer Alley, Donaldsonville, Louisiana. <laughs> you know, I'm one of many of my friends who almost died of cancer. You know? And when people say, why are you so passionate about this stuff? It's like, I grew up next to a freaking urea plant. Right. Next to that a cane sense. field. It's personal. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, I don't want to see this continue. Yeah. Well, and you're certainly doing your part to try and spread your message. So, so the documentary Beyond Impossible is available now on Amazon and other, and other sources where you can you can find movies. And what do you what do you hope is the the main takeaway people are going to get from this? Just like with all my movies, I hope they just start, you know, just thinking. You know, it's just yeah. it, it, I wanted to start the conversation. Um, you know, you mentioned I put the scary stuff in there of the animals being shot and. Uh, and the animals being crushed up in a combine. It's kind of like in the first movie. <clears throat> I can't tell you the number of people who have told me over the years, hey, man, when I saw that foot dropping into that pail in the first movie, I showed an amputation in the first movie. You know, I knew that was going to be me. My doctor told me, and, but until I saw it, I didn't know the truth. And the same thing with this movie. Until you see it, you don't know the truth. I'm hoping that it just starts a dialogue. I think that's a great goal. I think that's a great goal. Start the dialogue, start the conversation, and let's find a, a cordial and reasonable solution down the road. So I look forward to people seeing this and see what kind of feedback you get and the response, and, and hopefully it will do just that. So, so thank you, Vinny. Thanks for joining us. Next, let's hear from Simon Hill. Now, Simon uh, is at plantproof.com. He's a physiotherapist and has a master's in nutritional science. He also is on uh, Instagram and Twitter at plantproof. He has a book by the same name, plantproof, um, and a podcast by the same name. And he is definitely a proponent of plant-based diets. 
but I really like his approach because he, he, he likes to see things from a science standpoint. He really tries not to be dogmatic and get into the whole diet wars, but sees things from a, a sort of a broader perspective. And that's why I wanted to have him on the show today um, to talk about a lot of these concepts, about documentaries, about the diet wars, um, about how we see sort of what I call the vegan agenda. And I think he's got some thoughtful um, insights. In the end, he does talk about um, ApoB. Um, and LDL, which we have a lot of information on at Diet Doctor. He makes one comment that I, I, I regret not not asking more about because I didn't want this to be an LDL talk, though. But he says if you have low ApoB, you you can't get heart disease, um, and and I guess that's true to a degree if the ApoB is extremely low. But what some people consider low, or or LDL, you know, using ApoB and LDL together, what some people consider low of like a hundred or seventy, it's clear you can still get heart disease at that level and you have to drive it exceedingly low to get to this point where it's unlikely to get heart disease. But even then it's still certainly possible, but I don't want that to, to color the discussion because that was sort of thrown in there at the end and not what the discussion was about, but I did want to clarify that. But so many good points um, made by Simon and just a good discussion. Again, we don't always answer questions and wrap it up with a, a neat, tidy bow, which I know some people like, but but here's the discussion with Simon Hill. All right, well, Simon Hill, thank you so much for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. Brett, thank you so much for having me. I uh, appreciate the opportunity and really looking forward to this conversation and, and seeing where we go. Yeah, me too. I've really been looking forward to this. It's a pleasure here. So, you know, we just heard we just heard from Vinny Tortorich and about his documentary. And what it really brings up in me is this this just overriding sensation of of like a people butting heads and the polarization and the and sort of the feeling that there's a pushing of a of what's called a vegan agenda and um that, that's sort of like the polarized approach to it, that there's this outside force sort of like pushing the, this, this agenda on people. And, and, you know, I think that it's easy to sort of fall into that trap when you see that on social media. So I wanted to hear from you because I know you're very thoughtful and very involved in this space. How would, how you respond when you hear that, when you hear someone, I guess you say from the other side of the aisle feeling that way? Well, I totally understand how they, come to that conclusion and why they are feeling that way. And, and I think we just need to take a little step back and, and think about where we're getting our information from, because we can all end up feeling that way if we're just reading headlines or we're watching documentaries. I could end up feeling the same way about a low-carb ketogenic and someone else might watch a documentary and feel that way about a vegan diet. And I think we, we, Need to come back to where are we getting information from is it reliable is it trustworthy is it nuanced and you know that's a word that i use a lot and and i feel like i maybe repeat it too often but it's so important that in this whole diet conversation nothing is black and black and, and white and when we make it that way we end up doing a disservice to the science and yeah. and i think what happens is when we oversimplify it and and, and I think that oversimplification is done for a few reasons. One is it sells, <laughs> you, you know, it sells. And two, being, you know, maybe fair to, to people that do go down that absolute route is that perhaps it is a little more uh, easier for people to remember and to apply because they don't have to think about all of the nuance. They just get a single message. This is the best diet for this. Here's the prescription. And there's you know, there's, there's a little sort of requirement to go and, and think about the ins and outs of all of it and then apply it to your own context and your own circumstance. And as you and I know, there is no one prescription. And every time we're looking at science, it's well compared to what? What dietary pattern? Who's the person we're talking about? Is it a kid? Is it an adult? Is it an athlete? And so I come from an academic background. You know, my dad has been a professor now for 25 plus years in physiology, has been publishing studies for 40 plus years, journals like Metabolism and New England Journal of Medicine, you know, top, top journals. And is I, I've been surrounded by science since I was a little kid. So I come at this from another angle. I see documentaries, whether it is a vegan documentary like Game Changers or documentaries on keto diets 
and I might watch them, but I'm watching them from an entertainment perspective. Yeah. And, and I'm watching them because I realize I'm going to get a thousand questions about them and, <laughs> and I need to help explain things. And I, I sort of understand why directors and producers go down the route that they do with these documentaries. Um, and, and, and so I, I, I can see how they do come about. Uh, but sometimes I do wonder whether they're creating more confusion um, than there needs to be. So uh, I'm not sure if I completely answered your question there, other than really trying to emphasize that I think we all need to really think about what is the source of information that we're using to come to our conclusions. And that's what I'm so interested in today. When I see the diet wars, I actually don't really buy into the person that is behind the message. I just want to understand how they're coming to that message. Mm -hmm. What is the methodology behind that, the thinking? And are they thinking from the scientific mindset about the evidence hierarchy? Are they thinking about all of the nuance? And, um, you know, this gets particularly hard for the general public to make sense of when you're not trained to think like that. Yeah, and that and so many great points in there, but it, it sort of makes me think of when you're talking about evidence and you talk about, you know, the the benefits of lowering carbohydrates or reducing carbohydrates in your diet. That's sort of you can state that stands by itself. That by itself does not equal a ketogenic diet. Ketogenic diet would have sort of its own evidence base. And you can say the same for plants. Eating plants and having health benefits for plants doesn't equate to a vegan diet, but you would have to separate those two and evaluate the evidence specifically for a vegan diet rather than just saying plants are healthy, therefore a vegan diet is good. So, um, But I think those messages get conflated on both sides of the mm -hmm. equation. So uh, do yeah. you agree on that too? Definitely. And, and I mean, there's a lot to jump into there. But one thing, and I think this is, is sort of where you're going, is that often we get caught up in our own personal experience in the tribe we're in. And so if I have adopted a plant-based diet that's high carb and it's worked for me, then that becomes the universal truth that that is the optimal diet for everyone. And you see that in every single camp. You, it's a very easy trap to fall into. And, yeah. and look, I, my position on diet is that low carb diets can work, high carb diets can work. The quality of the diet is probably the single most important thing. And uh, for whatever reason, I'm not sure we fully teased out why some people do better on low carb and why some people do really well on high carb. I don't think science fully understands that, whether that is uh, a genetic or a behavioral type of um, predictor there. But overall, I think what's happening in many of these different diet tribes is go down this path. And I see this in the vegan community. You know, I, there's a lot of this rhetoric about low-fat vegan diets. Mm -hmm. And and to be honest, Brett, the science that substantiates a low-fat vegan diet as A, being most optimal diet, or B, being more optimal than a plant-based diet that has more fat, is not there. And if you look at what, what are the arguments that, or the evidence, I should say, that underpins that thought. You know, So someone who is is of the view that, for example, olive oil cannot be in a plant-based diet or it makes it poisonous. Yeah. That, that's always interested me. You know, I've, I've just wanted to kind of understand where did that come from? And you know, a lot of that comes for, from looking at intervention trials. For example, Dean Ornish has a, a study which is a, it was a randomized controlled trial. And, and so there was two groups and one there was a control group who just had standard care. These were, these were subjects, secondary prevention. They had cardiovascular disease. We're looking at, is there a difference between interventions and cardiovascular events? And so control group, standard care, other group adopted this low fat vegetarian diet. Now it, it was oil free, but then they also were told to stop smoking, to exercise, to do yoga. They were told to uh, or sorry, they were invited to psychosocial support groups. They were given a sense of community. And it is true if you look at that study, those in the intervention group, they did better than the control group. But 
there are so many differences between those two groups. A, we can't even attribute that benefit to the vegetarian diet because all of those other lifestyle changes. And B, even if we could attribute it to the diet, there's no way of, of zooming in and attributing that to the lack of oil. There were a lot of differences between the diet. For example, the vegetarian diet had more fruits and vegetables and less, less ultra-processed foods. And so I think what, what's happening is an, an oversimplification and often a misinterpretation of the science. And, yeah. and when I spend a lot of time thinking about this, I think it, it comes down to our psyche. And, and often we, we want to find one thing to blame. Mm-hmm. And, and so if I was going to sort of just sit on the fence here for the moment, I see in the low carb community, it's all about seed oils and it's only about seed oils. And then in the vegan community, it's pretty much only about animal products and no animal products can be in a diet. And from, from where I sit and when I try and reconcile that, I think it is a way for people to simplify nutrition. Uh, it matches up with their anecdotal experience. And then yeah. it becomes their kind of singular universal truth and it becomes amplified through these different tribes. Uh, but then people that are involved in nutrition science kind of get a bit frustrated because it is a deviation away from what the science is actually showing. Dan, I had a, another podcast talking about nutritional science with Deirdre Tobias and, and actually Gary Tobbs, who created uh, NUSI to, to try and answer the question. And it's clear, like, the question's not going to get answered. Nutritional science doesn't answer the question, but it, in the, the Dean Orange's trial is the perfect example of that. It was an intervention. It was a multifaceted <coughs> intervention. So to take from that and say, this is the one thing that did it, you just can't, you can't do that. And I, I really like how you explain that. But you did reference that the, the quality of food is probably what matters most, the, the healthfulness index, whether it's you know low-fat, high-fat, high-carb, low-carb, how healthy are the foods you're eating. And traditionally, that comes down to this concept of whole foods, sort of more natural foods. So whether it's the whole food plant-based or whether it's just a whole food omnivore diet that's clearly healthier than the alternative. And that kind of brings me back to this concept of, uh, I, I apologize for calling it the vegan agenda because it sounds so like accusatory, but that's not how I mean it. But like this push of now Beyond Burger and Impossible Burger and, you know, Pat Brown, the Impossible Food CEO saying we should get rid of all ruminants, we should get rid of all cows and Bill Gates saying everybody should be eating, you know, uh, uh, the, the processed imitation meat. And to me, that doesn't ring true for this whole food plants based whole food plant-based approach and the sort of healthy food options, whole food options. So to me, there's sort of a conflict there. Um, And not that I expect you to be the spokesman for all these people, right? And to represent them. But I want to get your, your take on that, your personal take on that and whether you have that internal conflict as well. Yeah. Let me, I'll give you my view and people may disagree with me and, and look, I may be wrong. There are, there are things that no doubt I will be wrong about. Uh, I kind of look at that space and I think about, well, where is it coming from? Where is this space, uh, you know, what's giving some fuel to this kind of industry? And I I don't see health as being the sort of primary igniter. I see the the primary reason for these industries being this, this problem that we have, how are we going to produce enough protein to feed a growing population, particularly developing countries who are getting thirstier and thirstier for protein, and rightly so. You know, our countries, be it US, be it Australia, we have prospered as we have been able to produce more protein, animal protein. And yes, there has been an environmental consequence of that. But are we in a position to tell these countries, you can't go down that route and produce animal protein and you know, that's a, that's a, a huge ethical conversation to have, right? Um, and I don't believe that, that we, can, we can do that. So there is, there is clearly problems with our existing food system in the way that we're producing protein. I think everyone agrees on that to some level. Um, and there, right now, there are lots of different solutions being proposed, both within animal agriculture and within this kind of alternative uh, protein space as ways that we can 
feed this growing population without further ruining our planet because we all lose if we continue to go down that path. And and I think one thing that we can all agree on here, whether it's eating, I, I hate how we're defined by our, our diets, but whether we eat a keto diet or a vegetarian or a Mediterranean or a vegan diet, we all want a beautiful flourishing planet. And I should throw carnivores into that as well. Um, and, and so there are all of these different solutions being thrown up and, and I've had conversations with Jonathan Foley from project drawdown, who's a leading climate scientist, really highly regarded, one of the high, most highly regarded in the world He's not plant-based. Um, and you know, he speaks to really the necessity to have many different solutions. And so we hear about regenerative agriculture, it gets thrown up. And there are pros and cons of regenerative agriculture. It's really good at some things. It's not so good at others. I think the, the, the alternative meat space as well is good, potentially can be good for some things and could be detrimental for others. And I kind of zoom out and think, hang on, maybe there is a space for a bit of all of this. And rather than it becoming a war and it's I'm right and you're wrong and there's only one way, how can we just work towards a better future that has lots of different solutions, providing people with food that is better for the environment? They can choose what food they want. And at the end of the day, I don't really care if it's beyond meat, impossible or a regenerative farmer. I want us as the public to hold them accountable to the science because there's claims being made on all sides. There's regenerative claims being made online that are not supported by science. There's no doubt claims being made by plant-based alternatives, uh, companies that uh, are not fully backed by science. And, and so somehow I think we need to get to this position where we're just, we have greater transparency because that's what's happened. We've developed a food system and we've taken our eye off of what's happening to our land and to our planet and environment. And so I think having gone through that experience and landing where we are now, whatever food system it is that we create, as, as populations, we want to have great insight into what these companies are doing. So, um, you know, I can't fully comment on uh, exactly what the, the best solutions are. I think currently it's very hard to work through all of the, the, the different kind of arguments that are out there. Um, but having spoken to the likes of Jonathan Foley and, and, and looking at um, reports like the Drawdown Report, I think it is clear that people need to eat more whole plants for sure. And animal agriculture needs to be done in a more sustainable manner. Uh, and there probably is a space for these alternative protein uh, foods to help feed a growing universal population, but we should make them accountable. We should make sure that their, their, uh, their production is environmentally friendly. And also we should make sure that they're producing health, healthy products, not, not foods that are labeled as plant-based and vegan and get that halo effect. And we just assume they're healthy. We should actually be holding them accountable from a nutrition point of view as well. Wow. I love to hear that last point. Cause I, I think that is so important because you, you, you hit the nail on the head right now with the narrative that if it's, if it's vegan, it's got the healthy halo around it. And, and I, we transitioned from health to environment quickly be and and that that just highlights i think part of the problem that there it's like a three-headed um approach that there's the health there's the environment and then there's the animal cruelty issue and they get combined so the assumption is it's healthy the assumption is it's better for the planet the assumption is it's better for the animals and they get all get bunched together, like you said, to simplify the message. And because it's hard to, to talk about the nuance and to comprehend the nuance. So I really like how you said we have to hold them accountable that it is healthy because we don't know that. And there's reason to believe that maybe it's not going to be as healthy of a source of protein. And we need to hold them accountable that it's good for the planet. Because again, the assumption, sort of the halo is that it's it's completely carbon neutral or carbon negative to produce these products, which which it isn't. Um, and I think we need to learn more about that as well. So I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. I guess the harder part is, is how do we translate that to a simple message for people to understand now? And I don't expect you to come up with a soundbite right now that sums everything up, because I think that is the hard part, that 
that, that there, we do have to have the discussion and break through the assumptions and the halos. Um, well, I, you know, I, I, when I wrote my book, uh, I specifically separated health and environment as two distinct areas of discussion. And so if I was to summarize this to folks listening, look, I, I don't think there is one single optimal diet that science has has decisively shown is the single diet that we must prescribe for everyone. And that's the only diet that, that will produce optimal health. I think there are similar characteristics across diets. They do tend to share things. And one of the main things they share is that they're low in ultra processed foods and they tend to be provide a good amount of fiber, for example. Um, and, you know, I, I think that my view is that plant predominant style dietary patterns, including like a Mediterranean style diet, which is a omnivorous diet and can be done in a low carb or a high carb sort of manner. I think the, the Mediterranean diet is a very, very healthy pattern uh, when thoughtfully constructed. And I'm not sure there'll be too many people arguing over that. So often that's a, a sort of good starting point when I just want to give someone uh, a sort of starting point for them to to think about what is a healthy diet and then they can start to to further think if they if they want to think about the environmental impact of their food choices if they want to think about animal welfare then that may that may see them make changes from that deviating from that dietary pattern to a more plant exclusive style diet and when you're doing that the, the key thing is when you remove animal products from your diet, it doesn't automatically make your diet healthier. It can make your mm-hmm. diet less healthy. So what you replace animal products with, if you're going down that route, whether it's an environmental or an animal welfare uh, decision is super important and critical. And it's not ultra processed foods, it's whole plant foods. And, and so that is a, a point worthy of consideration. Yeah. Yeah. And now within the, um, I guess you could say omnivorous or animal food culture, there's a lot of talk about regenerative agriculture. And like you brought up, um, that it's got the potential to raise animals in a more sustainable way to actually help the environment and still provide high quality food, high quality protein. Now, is the opposite true within the plant-based communities? Is there a discussion about better ways to grow grains and soy and corn and, and, and plants in a way that's also not hurting the environment from, you know, the monoculture, the, the tilling, the fertilizer, like, is that same discussion happening within the, the plant community? Oh yeah. And, and, and we need to be clear that regenerative agriculture is not a word as synonymous with holistic grazing. Holistic grazing is one part of regenerative agriculture. Good point. A regenerative, regenerative agriculture includes plant agriculture done regeneratively. And so polycropping, intercropping, a lot of these practices are actually borrowing from indigenous principles and, and they sort of come, you know, back uh, mainstream, I guess, through regenerative agriculture under that banner. But absolutely, and these companies that are producing alternative proteins, they're, they're riding off the back of industrial agriculture right now. Absolutely. If you look at their ingredients, you know, largely because they're the only ingredients they can buy in the quantities that they're using. It's similar ingredients that are being fed into factory farms. So um, having listened to quite a few discussions of CEOs and senior execs in these companies, you know, they're, they're very, very excited to explore all, a whole lot of other plant materials that are currently not available. And and that's actually exciting because they can improve their products, but at the same time, they can support plant diversity within farming. And as you and I know, that's critical to helping our uh, ecosystems recover and flourish and thrive. And so that conversation is there, but I'm glad that you raised that because it is really important. All sides of this conversation need to do better. This is not just about uh, getting rid of factory farming. Plant agriculture needs to improve as well. Uh, adjacent to that. 
So if, if you were gonna leave us with a message, what do you think people who are interested in eating low carb, who believe low carb nutrition is important and they wanna have you know, a, a good sustainable diet for them that they enjoy and get enough protein, what can they learn from the plant-based community that can help them on their path? So as I mentioned earlier, I think that a low carb diet can work very well and for, for some people, best option. I think that how you construct that low carb diet is worth thinking about. And, and I think it can be done in a, in a manner where you feel good, you're achieving your goals, and you're also reducing your risk of lots of these very common chronic diseases, particularly cardiovascular disease. And there's this very big discussion right now around LDL cholesterol and APOB containing lipoproteins, and I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, I'm of the view that elevated ApoB containing lipoproteins is something that we should try and avoid. I think that science is particularly strong there showing that that is a necessary component to develop atherosclerosis. Sure, there are other factors absolutely that can compound that, but if you have low ApoB containing uh, lipoproteins, it's, it's pretty rare. It's almost impossible to develop atherosclerosis. And so, uh, I think that's a, a, a good uh, point that, that people should be aware of. And, and, so, and you can now go and obviously you can test for non-HDL, which is a, a, a fairly good test um, to indicate the amount of APOB containing lipoproteins, or you can request an APOB test as well, which is a, a better uh, biomarker or a better test than LDL cholesterol. Uh, for some people, LDL cholesterol is pretty good for about 80% of the population, but out there where it doesn't really accurately reflect the amount of APOB lipoproteins. Where I'm going with all of this is that I think a low carb diet that is high, fi high fiber, if, it, if it's containing animal products, they're more of the leaner animal products. And within there, you're still going to have uh, quite a bit of plant diversity. It's going to be coming from mostly your non-starchy vegetables, lots of color in there. And if you're doing that and your blood glucose control is good, your blood pressure is good, and your APOB or non-HDL is good, uh, and you're exercising and you're sleeping and you're ticking all of those boxes, then I think you know, from where I sit, I think that you're in great shape and you're, you're making some choices to lower your risk of, of not just cardiovascular disease, but fatty liver disease, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, I should say, um, various forms of cancer uh, and so forth. Well, there you have it. What do you think? Heard two very different perspectives from people with different backgrounds, different approaches. Um, Vinny Tortorich and his new documentary, Beyond Impossible, really taking a critical look at the vegan agenda uh, the, and sort of the concepts of environmental and ethical and and uh, do the least amount of harm and really kind of poking holes into those, um, those arguments and those belief sets as it applies to, to most people. Um, and also the concern about the health aspect of what this is going to mean by, by pushing this vegan lifestyle um, on everybody, especially when it's a highly processed uh, version of a vegan lifestyle. And then hearing from Simon Hill, who is a, a big proponent of whole food plant-based diets. And, and I really like his perspective of it, it has to be healthy um, and not just say vegan for vegan sake um, and sort of taking the, the broader perspective on things. And if I was going to throw my two cents in there, look, I'd say there's clearly a role for, for plant-based diets for those people who want to choose that. But to assume it's healthy, to assume it's better for the environment, and to assume it's the most ethical choice, I think clearly falls short because those assumptions don't hold up the majority of the time. Now, we all have different priorities in life. We can't go around prioritizing everything the same. Some, some people are going to prioritize cows and chickens over uh, rats and mice and moles. And if that's their prerogative, right, they can choose to do that. But that doesn't mean it needs to, that that viewpoint needs to be the same and needs to be pushed on everybody else, right? Some people may think that the best way to improve the environment is to make personal choices, to make small reductions, rather than to try and focus on the biggest producers of coal and gas and 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 focus more on what governments and individuals can do to lower those impacts. Um, again, somebody's individual prerogative, right? You can 
Um, some people want to feel like they're doing something, being more active and choosing what's convenient. Others um, are less swayed by that and more swayed by the bigger picture. Totally, totally right for that each individual. Um, but again, it comes down to trying to to promote it as one way, as one best way, as the way everybody needs to um, approach something. And then having that trickle down to impact our food choices. And I think what gets lost is food is so individualized. Food is emotion and feeling and how we're brought up and our memories and our culture and how that plays into our health. And to just try and kind of ignore the whole concept and, and assume that we can just dictate what people eat I think it's just so um, short-sighted and just leads to so many problems and is not sustainable. And that's why we need to have open discussions so people can make up their own mind to find the best diet that works for them, that they enjoy, that improves their health and fits with their personal beliefs. Because we don't have the same beliefs, we don't have the same health status, and we don't have the same response and enjoyment to food. So really keeping that open um, I think is so important. And that's what we lose when we try and push a specific agenda on everybody. So anyway, hopefully this was a helpful discussion and we'll try and have more of these discussions, um, you know, crossing the aisle and getting different perspectives because I think it's helpful. Uh, but that's it for today. We'll see you next time on the Diet Doctor Podcast.